And Lord, we do ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the summer before my senior year of high school, I was selected to be part of a thing called summer staff, because it was a staff in the summer, and it was the youth summer staff at the church that I attended and grew up at. And every summer we would apply, well, you could apply uh, the summer before your senior year of high school, and if you applied and you were accepted, you got to work with the junior high kids during the summer, and you were paid to be an intern. I think I made $1,000 for three months of work uh, back then. Minimum wage, laws hadn't kicked in yet. Churches ignore those anyways. I'm not sure what was going on, but I didn't make a whole lot of money. And that wasn't the point. It started me on my journey to being a pastor. And I remember that summer, uh, the times were structured where we would take turns teaching Sunday school, leading things on Sundays with the kids. On Mondays, we would have the day off because that's what pastors do and did. And Tuesdays, we would come in. We had a thing called summer seminar, and they'd have different teachers. Uh, They would teach us things about ministry, but they would also teach us things about the scriptures, about theology. And we were blessed because our church was rather large. It had a lot of resources, but we were also down the road from Denver Seminary. And so we had professors from Denver Seminary that would come and teach us. Um, And so we received amazing teaching on the scriptures and theology. And in the afternoons, we reserved for what we called contact work, where we would call up kids and we'd do horrible things like go golfing with them, or we would go hang out at the pool, or we would uh, go to Burger King and get a Coke with a kid, or, you know, we'd just go to a movie. Uh, uh, But we, we were spending time with kids. Uh, and we'd plan and organize big events and campouts and sleepovers and guy nights and girl nights, and somehow the guys and the girl nights would end up being like a big, huge water balloon fight at a park that just randomly happened somehow. There was a speaker during our summer seminar, and uh, his name was Dr. Means, Dr. James Means. And Dr. Means had been, uh, actually at that point he was a pastor in Denver. He pastored a large church, evangelical free church, and uh, he came in and his topic was this, God makes no guarantees. God makes you no guarantees. And I remember reading that, and I remember sitting in there, and it was one of the more intriguing and one of the more difficult and one of the more irritating uh, teachings we had all summer long. But he came and he spoke with such authority and with such conviction that you couldn't argue the guy. Now, why was he so convincing? Because he was a pastor. He had been a good pastor, a faithful minister of the gospel. He had led many people to Christ. His church was growing. Lots of folks were coming and worshiping Jesus Christ and finding Jesus Christ at Southern Gables Church. Uh, Everything was successful there. He'd been there many years. He had grown up a young man following Jesus Christ, and his life was blessed 
You ever seen that in our culture today? Hashtag blessed, you know? It's like a humble brag. It's like a humble way to say, yeah, I'm on the beaches of San Diego, I'm blessed, you know, which is another way of saying, sorry that you're not here with me. Not really, I'm just really blessed and you're not. And Jim Means, he could have been able to be the guy that would have said, I'm blessed, the humble brag. Then his wife was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And within a year, she'd be gone. Here's this pastor of what was a megachurch at the time, over a thousand people attending on Sunday mornings, and his wife dies. And their adult children wrestling through God care. And imagine the prayer chain at a church of over a thousand people, especially when it's the pastor and his wife, and lots of good Christian folks dropping to their knees praying for Dr. Maines and his wife. Many years later, I'd find myself in his seminary class <laughs> and he made the same convicting comments. And a lot of it was shaped as a pastor through the years, helping families bury infants and children and youth and helping families bury aged grandparents, helping walk that path with so many people, a path that he was all too familiar with. And he would talk about how God makes no guarantees. And it was so interesting because while I was at Denver Seminary, a man, 46 years old, a couple years younger than I am currently today, Dr. Clyde McDowell became the president of Denver Seminary. Dr. McDowell had served at uh, Mission Hills Baptist Church It's on the corner of University and Orchard. I drove by it every single day to high school. (laughs) And Dr. McDowell became the the preacher there, the pastor there in 1983. And he would serve there until 1996 when he would become the, the seminary, the president of Denver Seminary. And Dr. McDowell was a gifted visionary leader. He was a gifted communicator. And within a few short months of becoming the president of Denver Seminary, he lost his ability to speak. He would be diagnosed with a brain tumor. He couldn't speak. He couldn't communicate with his wife, his children, let alone the community of seminarians who are studying God, studying Christ about to enter into the field, needing answers when people experience hard times. In the week of my graduation from Denver Seminary, Dr. McDowell died. And at our graduation, we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That same week, my good friend, Ken West, friend and mentor, had been diagnosed with cancer. Ken, not the most studious person in the world, but a fun-loving, gracious man who loved Jesus Christ like few I've ever met. Like if he was your pastor here, you wouldn't be enough. Not you personally, but just the number of you. 
because Ken was the most extroverted man in the world I've ever met in my life, that Ray could not, it wouldn't be enough. He'd get to know everybody here within the first week, and he'd start in on Vernon and Eckley and Yuma and Holyoke. When his wife accepted the engagement ring from him, Ken's mom said, you'll have to share him with the world. And Ken was just that kind of man. His funeral was an hour and a half to two hours long, and the whole funeral was people saying, no, when Ken was on his deathbed, he told me I was his best friend. (laughs) It was the running joke throughout the funeral because that's just the kind of guy Ken was. And you've already heard, he died five years later. All people who gave their life to the ministry of the gospel, to following Jesus Christ, to advancing God's kingdom. I remember when Dr. Means was finished giving his spiel, we got to ask questions. And it was the longest Q&A of any Q&A we had that summer because all of us young 18, 19, 20-year-old kids were like, what do you mean? What do you mean Christian karma isn't a thing? What do you mean that if I've been good my whole life, that God isn't on the hook to bless me? We didn't word it those ways, but that's what we were asking. That's what we were saying. You mean to tell me that I'm following Jesus and he is not guaranteeing anything out of this? You mean to tell me that if I do all the right things, and I abstain from all the bad things, that at the end of the day, I may not get anything out of this? It was super irritating because he had proof. He was walking, breathing proof that you could follow Jesus Christ. That you could give your life in service of him. And he didn't owe you anything. I left that class. I left Clyde's service. I left Ken's service. I've officiated many services. I have left other services of friends and pastors, Noel Sullivan. And there's still part of me... (laughs) There's still a part of me that says, no, that's not true. That is not true. Karma works. There's still a part of me that says, no, 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 no. If I'm a good boy, if I'm a faithful, if I do my part, if I give my money, if I give my time, if I give my energy, then he owes me something. I'm a lot like this guy in Mark chapter 10. Ironically, I preached this a year ago, nearly to the day. But I'm going to do it different this time. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus is hanging out like Jesus does, and just a crowd of people gather around the guy, and uh, there's this rich young man. Mark 10, verse 17. 
As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give, testimony, give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher. Notice how he dropped good that time. Teacher, he declared. All these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is not angry, mean Jesus. This is kind, compassionate, loving Jesus. One thing you lack, he said, and then he tells him four things. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Which of the one does he lack? (laughs) Which of those four is the one? At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with human beings, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up and We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. The many who are first will be last and the last first. I read this passage because I feel like this young guy feels like God owes him. Much like me. I've kept all these since I was a boy. I've been a faithful Jew. In fact, in that context, in that worldview, it would not have been that surprising for Jesus to answer, well, give all you have and follow me. That's not an alarming response. I mean, like it is for us today. It's not an alarming response. If you remember uh, the stories of the early church in Acts, where it says many people were selling fields and taking the proceeds and bringing them and laying them at the feet of the apostles so that no one in their midst would would, would be without. And this wasn't because the apostles were you know, iron-fisted telling people to do this. There wasn't any command in Acts for people to do this and behave this way. It was just people were so moved in their zeal and in their love for Jesus Christ that they were moved to, to give sacrificially. This would not have been a, a surprising response from Jesus. What is surprising, though, is that God's not on the hook for this guy. That he's not good enough. What is surprising is that a man who has done the commandments since he was a little boy, who's a good guy, and by the way, has wealth 
and influence, and that are always signs of God's divine blessing, according to the Old Testament, that he's instructed to to give it away. I mean, what's surprising is that this man that everyone would have assumed, don't you hear how the disciples say, then who can enter? If a rich guy can't, if someone who clearly is living a blessed life can't, if somebody who is doing all the commandments can't, who can? And you can almost hear the other question behind it. Who does God owe? Doesn't he owe good people a good life? Doesn't he owe faithful people a good time while they're here? I mean, even though for years I have rejected the prosperity gospel, even for years I have rejected prosperity gospel and prosperity teachers, I have read their writings and I just go, ugh, this is wrong. It's crept into me. Their ideas have become a part of me. Where if I step back and I look at my life and I look at my expectations and I look at my frustrations and I look at the disconnect that I feel sometimes where it's like, God, I have been a good boy. (laughs) And I'm trying to be a good man. And that should count for something. You owe me something. And if we're all honest... And this is a good day to be honest. This is a good place to be honest. This is a safe place to be honest. If we're all honest, we all believe this. We all believe that at some level, if we're good, if we're faithful, if we're generous, if we're kind, then we're owed. That we will get it back in some way. That God is on the hook. How do I know this? How do I know that we all believe this? Because when bad things happen to good people, who is the finger pointed at? It's never at them. I mean, it might be briefly, it might be, oh yeah, I did something wrong, I was sinful, I was a bad person, I had this coming. It might be to them. But more times than not, why did you let this happen? How dare you do this to me? Why? How? That's how I know we all have a bit of the prosperity gospel lodged deep within our souls. That's why it packs auditoriums all across the world. That's why it sells millions and billions of copies of books. That's why it works, because all of us think, yeah, God's on the hook. I left that time with Dr. Means clinging, (laughs) hoping that God makes some guarantees. And I'm not talking about promises. I'm talking about guarantees. And there's a difference, a huge difference, monumental 
difference. And it took me, let's see, I would have been 17. It took me 31 years. And it's going to take me another 31 years, Lord willing, to still convince me that he doesn't make guarantees. How did God start doing this? He started disappointing me. He started to allow me to experience suffering in my own life. He started to allow me to walk along with people in deep and horrible suffering. He started to allow those things that I thought he was on the hook to bless me with and give me to not ever be given to me. He allowed me to have dark nights of the soul, as the ancients called it. He allowed me to try to become an atheist several times. And I just found I, I can't do it. I can't go there. I mean, I can try. But I keep coming back to this nagging desire for justice, for right for wrongs in the world to be made right, I keep coming back to, I can't be a being that lives with no hope. (laughs) And he allowed me to experience suffering and doubt and hardship. And many of you are in those places now. And I want to say a couple things to you. It's okay. (laughs) It is okay to be in those dark places horrid places it is natural it is normal it is part of this experience in this world and we are stupid to deny it we are cruel to deny it jesus himself cried out from the cross my god my god why hast thou forsaken me and if it can come out of the lips of god in the flesh And God the Father is big enough boy to handle it. Then why do we tell people when they doubt that they're wrong and they're sinning and they need to stop it? That's mean. It is okay to go through dark, difficult places, it is okay to doubt. It is okay to doubt God, to doubt Jesus Christ, to doubt that he loves us, that he cares for us. It is okay. He is big enough. If you don't believe he's big enough, then you need to read the Psalms a little closer. You need to go back and you need to listen to the sermons on Lamentations. You need to be more familiar with your Bible because this thing is full of knuckleheads like you and I who are trying to make sense of a God who doesn't make sense. And they have doubts. But they keep coming back. Just like the disciples, when the crowd left Christ, and the disciples come back and they say, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, that's the difference between followers of Christ and those who don't. 
It's not that they never have doubts and problems. It's not that they never (laughs) have issues with God and they're trying to wrestle through these things. It's that they keep coming back and saying, (laughs) where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So if you're in that place today, or if you're not in that place, but you soon will be. How do I know? Eh, just, you know, I got files for you. I got books to give you. I got stories to tell you. I mean, this life is basically one nice hill from another valley, right? I mean, it's just hills and valleys and hills and valleys. And for some of us, there's more valleys than there are hills. But if you're in that place or about to be in that place, be gracious with yourself, with others, and keep coming back to the one who has the words of life. Quit believing in Christian karma. It will hurt you in the end. It will disappoint you in the end because it's a lie. It doesn't work that way. If it did, just a quick thought experiment. If Christian karma worked, would Jesus Christ have been crucified? I mean, if if being a good person and living perfectly and being nice to everybody and doing all that you were supposed to do, would Jesus Christ have died on the cross if Christian karma worked? If you only got what you deserved? If you only got the good from your good acts and good behavior and good intentions and you only received the bad from your bad works and your bad intentions and your bad beliefs, if that worked, explain to me Jesus Christ. Explain to me the Apostle Paul. Explain to me Peter, who Jesus himself said, you will die on a cross like me. And John quickly says, he told them this to let him know the manner in which he would glorify the Lord through his death. Have you ever thought that your death could glorify the Lord? I mean, for most of us, we think death is a horrible defeat. Death is a horrible, and by the way, it is horrible But for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, it's not defeat. For those with loved ones who have faith in Christ, it is not defeat. Remember what the Apostle Paul said, Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You think he's just naive and stupid saying this? (laughs) No, he wrote it from prison. He wrote it after a good beating. He wrote it facing down execution. He wrote it watching friends die. He watched, he wrote this after he oversaw the stoning of Stephen. He knew what this faith could cost him, and he still mocks death. Why? Because he kept coming back to the one whose words had eternal life. You see, that is the great promise 
that you and I have. God makes no guarantees, but the great promise we have is this, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And if we place our faith in him, if we are allegiant to King Jesus, then one day when we die, we will be received in glory by him. And if Lord wills it, we haven't died, but he returns and we are there to watch him return. There is coming a day where the king will wipe away every tear. There is coming a day where death will be destroyed. There is coming a day, Jesus promises, that every wrong will be made right. And no other religion offers that. No philosophy, no theology. The only one that offers this is the Christian gospel in which the Son of God suffered. I hope it doesn't take you as long (laughs) as it has me to figure out that this Christian karma thing is a lie. I hope it doesn't take you as long as it has me to believe and understand that God owes you nothing. That you are saved completely, utterly, fully, totally by his grace, by his mercy. It is a gift. None of us merit it. None of us deserve it. And I hope and pray it does not take you as long as it has taken me to come to grips. That there are no guarantees, but doggone it, we've got the best promise ever. We have the best promise ever. Why do I say it's the best promise? Because the worst thing that can happen to us is that we can cease to live. (laughs) We can die. But this promise says that our God through Christ is stronger than the grave. That our God is coming back for us. That he has gone to prepare a place for us. And he will come back to receive us so that we may be where he is. What a promise. If you need some encouragement today, if you need a way forward to look at this promise, then get your Bible out and read Revelation 21, 22, the end of the book. It's very easy to find. And read about this heavenly city that is being prepared and will crash into this place someday. Read about this place And read about the stories of those who conquer. You see, time and time and time and time and time again, and I know I'm going far afield, but I'm feeling a little passionate here. When you read Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, each end with Christ saying, to the one who conquers, I will. To the one who conquers, I will. 
And it's a promise. And do you know what the conquering is in that? It is dying faithful to Christ. That is the one who conquers. The one who conquers, according to those promises, is the one who dies allegiant, following, faithful to Jesus Christ. And he says, those who conquer, I will give them the right to sit on my throne. To those who conquer, I will give them crowns, iron scepters, authority over the nations, over the cosmos. See, in reality, to realize these promises, there's only one doorway. There's only one way to realize these promises. And that, unfortunately, from our perspective, is death. But think of the promise. Think of those amazing gifts that await us. My hope and prayer for all of us as we walk through this life, as we walk through times of loss and tragedy and pain, as we walk through times of joy and happiness, that we would never blame ourselves for those things. That we would not take greater credit for our joy and wealth and happiness because it's not us. And we would not blame ourselves for the loss and the grief and the pain and the trials. That we would understand it's just part of life here. In a broken, fallen world awaiting its rightful king. One last thing from the text and I'll be done. Did you see who Jesus said for him to give his wealth to? The poor. If you have the world view that the wealthy are the ones blessed by God, then by extension, the poor are the ones not blessed by God. And yet it is those people that Jesus says he wants him to give his wealth to. You see, in a very real way, our worldviews, our viewpoints, our understandings of who's blessed, who isn't, who's in, who's out, has incredible consequences. And Jesus came in and he just upsets the apple cart. And in many ways, he, he changes the perspective and the question of all of us. When I was in high school, a song came out. It was written by a guy named Steve Taylor. He's kind of weird, and he's kind of a sarcastic, cynical kind of guy. But he wrote this little catchy song, and it was called, You Don't Owe Me Nothing. And I found that when I start thinking God owes me, if I have that little ditty go through my head, you don't owe me nothing, why do you give it anyway? that that is a powerful corrective for me. It is a powerful corrective for Christian karma. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would just impress that on you. (laughs) That you would walk out of here and when you are tempted to think you're owed something by God, it would just cross your mind. You don't owe me nothing. Why do you give it anyway? Let us pray.
Father, we thank you that you are gracious and good. I mean, so good that we even get to the point where we think you owe us things because you have blessed us in such spectacular ways that we take for granted all the time. I pray, Father, that you would be in the midst of our lives, correcting our stinking thinking. That you would help us to realize that uh, we do not merit your favor, that you do not owe us anything because we try to be good Christians. But, Father, we do pray that we would become far more clear on the promises you have given us. And especially the, what's called the blessed hope throughout Christian history. The blessed hope that death is not the end and we will rise and be made alive with Christ for all eternity. May we not hope that you give us stuff in this life, though we like it. May we not pine for relationships that we cannot have. May we not become envious of those around us who have better things and nicer things and more things. May we look to Christ and fix our eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and may he give you peace. May you know that he owes you nothing, but he has promised you an eternity with him.